when I was in college, that, that was back in 2004, 2005, um, that's what, yeah, they're all laughing. Yeah, I'm young, okay? Um, that's when televised poker got really popular. And like I said, I was in college, which means I was not going out and playing for money. I had no money. I ate rice and seaweed for lunch every day. So I wasn't going out and playing poker for money. But me and my friends, we still liked to get together on a Saturday night, and we would go play poker. Now, I, I went to school for a year in Las Vegas, and um, I learned something there that I'll never forget. And that's a saying that the locals have. That's that the big casinos aren't built by having winners at the table. It's true. Casinos were built with losers, both figuratively and literally. So I don't want to be a loser, so I've never gambled for money just because I've never had that much money. I, and, and another thing, I'm really bad at gambling. I'm really bad at poker. I'm really bad at cards because poker, what I learned when I played for fun at my friend Ryan's house, Poker requires two things, concentration and patience. And let's just say no one's ever called me Patient Patrick before. Um, one time at Ryan's house, I, on the first, very first hand of the game, I was dealt a full house, which is awesome. That's, that's a pretty good hand. And so I did what I, I thought you're supposed to do when you get a really good hand. I Set back, leaned back, took out a big breath, flipped my cards up just a little bit, and then shoved all of my chips all over the table. And I said, all in. And then my friend said, Patrick, we, we haven't bet yet. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, 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 so I don't win anything? And they're like, no, the game hasn't started. But you went all in. So we know you have a good hand. And I said, well, I want to win. They're like, well, then you got to play the game. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I'm just terrible at poker. But the worst move of any poker night when we, when we played at my friend Ryan's house was by a girl named Jenny. And Jenny was one of those girls that wanted to be one of the boys. And so on a Saturday night, she came over to Ryan's house, and we started playing poker. And um, final rounds in our tournament-style poker were really weird because we're not playing for big sums of money. We're playing for, like, a dollar. Final rounds were weird because it would just go like this. I go all in, and then the opponent goes all in, and then we hope one of us has really good cards. Because when you're not playing for money, poker isn't terribly exciting. But one night, the first and only night that Jenny came to play poker, she made it to the final round, which teaches me another lesson about gambling. In gambling, people who have no business winning end up winning. That's why I don't gamble. But Jenny did something that was... That was just so crazy, and, and, and I, it might be the only time in human history that this has actually happened. You see, in the final round, Jenny was dealt the royal flush. And if you don't know what the royal flush is, it's the ultimate hand. It's impossible to lose if you have the royal flush. So if you don't know gambling, here's how gambling works, or, or poker. If, I, if you have a great hand, your goal is to make your opponent bet as much money as possible so you can take their money. If you have an okay hand at poker, you, you might bet the same amount as your opponent. You, you would call their bet and bet the same amount. If you have a bad hand but you're still playing, you might check. You might say, I'm not going to put anything in on the table, but your opponent might not either. So you both play the hand, but you don't really put anything in on the table. Jenny was dealt a royal flush, and I have the chances here. The chances of getting a royal flush are 649,739 to 1. It's unbeatable. 
This is the only time I've ever seen one. Has anyone here seen a royal flush in person before? One, two people? Okay, awesome. Yeah, it's Caldwell, you've seen one? Okay, very, very rare. And uh, she was dealt one at the very last round. But that's not what's crazy. That's not what made this so memorable that I have to share it to you on a Sunday morning. What was so memorable was how she played it. If you get a royal flush, your goal is to get as much money from your opponent as possible because you cannot lose. And being the last round of the tournament, Jenny should have gone all in. She should have leaned back, looked around, and just shoved the chips all over the table. And that's exactly what she didn't do. Jenny had no idea she had a royal flush. Last round of the tournament, her opponent doesn't have any good cards. So he says, I'm not going to bet anything. Jenny says, okay, me neither. Next card plays down on the table. The opponent says, oh, I'll bet one chip. Jenny's like, uh, okay, okay, I'll, I'll call that. She takes one chip, put it on the table. The last card goes down on the table. Jenny is guaranteed of winning. She bets nothing. So we're all standing around because it's the finals, and, and she puts her cards on the table, and we go, what? What are you doing? And she looks up, and she goes, well, well I have a straight, right? I think I won. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she had a straight. She had the royal flush, and she had no idea. She should have gone all in, but she didn't know what she had. If she had gone all in, she was guaranteed to win. She couldn't lose, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about the cards that we've been dealt, about going all in, about the fact that as members of the kingdom of God, we can't lose. We are guaranteed to win. Like Jason said, we're going through a, a book called The Story. And the story is a condensed biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation. And in this, we're not just looking at isolated stories, but how the stories interact with God's overarching upper story. Last week, we learned about Saul, the first king of Israel. Israel had a king, God, but Israel said, we want a king with skin. And like all human leaders, all human presidents, all human kings, Saul messed up. He messed up big time. And because of that, he lost his favor with God. One time before the battle, he was nervous because the priest, Samuel, hadn't shown up yet. So Saul said, look at those guys. They're leaving because Samuel isn't here. So Saul did something in complete defiance of God. Saul said, well, I'm going to act like the priest. And so he started doing the sacrifices that were meant only for Samuel to do. And God said, you know you weren't supposed to do that. Another time, Saul was given direct battle orders by God. And Saul decided, I'm going to follow most of those orders. God said, if you don't wipe out these people, they're going to come back and kill your, kill your ancestors. And that's nearly what happened. So Saul didn't completely kill the Amalekites. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, I did. Life group, I pronounced it correctly. I told you I would. Saul refused to follow all of God's instructions. Saul wanted to do things Saul's way with God. He didn't want to go 100% God's way. So God rejected Saul. God rejected Saul because he was not all in, because he followed God most of the time. I want to look at one last huge mistake that Saul made, mostly because it's one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. Um, and we talked about this in the Bible class. The teens, we were talking about what are our biggest fears or our irrational fears, because Saul, it says in the Old Testament over and over again, Saul was terrified. Saul was filled with terror. 
So Jillian is scared of people dressing up in suit. Not, not like a suit suit, but like as a costume, right? Yeah, and especially clowns from what I've heard. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't even want me to mention it here. And, and Elena had the best one. She's, she's scared of little female ghosts. And, and the story she told us was, was that one night she was staying up watching Netflix and then went upstairs and her sister was in the stairway with all of her hair down, just staring at her. And she turns the corner and thinks it's a ghost, but it's her little sister. So Saul is a guy that is filled with terror. And, and it is also an illegitimate terror because God has taken care of him so many times. But it doesn't matter what God does, Saul is still terrified. So we're going to look at one of the last stories about Saul. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 3 through 9. And it's up here. I don't hear any pages turning, so I'll just start. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his, old, in his own town of Ramah. Remember this verse right here. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came up and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night he and two men went up to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I named. But the woman said to him, Surely you know that what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spirits from the land. Why have you set up a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Which is true. Saul gets punished for this. Then the woman asked, Okay, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers to me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you. To tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. As we've been talking about for, for months now, since September, God is creating a kingdom. And the kingdom is filled of people like us. And the, the, the biggest trait, what God is looking for, is trust. When, when you are filled with terror, Isaiah is scared of Elmo. When you are filled with terror, what do you turn to? If you feel abandoned, do you, do, you, do you turn to another god? Do you turn to witchcraft? Do we, when we're scared about our jobs, do we, 
do we turn to our resume? Do we turn to our experience, our savings accounts? What do we turn to when we're terrified, when we're filled with terror? It's crazy, and it's so easy for us to second-guess Saul because he turns to black magic when he doesn't know what to do. Now, Saul is still doing stuff for God, but what Saul is doing is just what I said earlier. He is mostly trusting God. He's leading God's people. Sure, he believes in God, but he's not trusting everything God says. Saul mostly trusted in God's battle plans. He mostly trusted in the timing of everything. He mostly trusted that Samuel would show up on time. He mostly trusted that God would win his battles. But as we looked at the life of Saul last week, and we're going to look at the life of David today, the big thing I learned is that there's no mostly trusting God. There's no mostly, no almost, no most of the time in the kingdom of God. Either we trust God or we don't. It's like we have the royal flush. Do we play the cards or do we think there's a chance we might lose? We're going to look at David now, and he lived a life that was all in with God's plan. But first, I have a special announcement. My parents are here. They are here for Thanksgiving. We are full of applause. I love it today. Um, when my mom was pregnant with me, they went to Israel, they went to Jerusalem, they went throughout the Holy Land. And my mom always says that uh, I got to go on a Holy Land tour, but I didn't have to walk through all of the heat. <laughs> but, but something really memorable happened back when she would walk through, when she walked through a street, walked down the market, everyone would point at her and go, oh, name him David. David is a great name for a baby. Over and over again, people would tell her that. And apparently she didn't believe them because I named Patrick. But, but David is actually, and this was, um, Grace and I have been doing trivia, and we, we were asked this trivia question. I didn't know this, but David is the second most mentioned person in the Bible next to Jesus. Absolutely. So David is mentioned more than any man in the Bible. His slogan, the thing we describe him is, um, that he was a man after God's own heart. I think that he put that on his um, on his king business card. It says that over and over again in the Bible. And what that means is that the desires of David were the exact same as the desires of God. That what David wanted most was the same things that God wanted most. And what that means is that David wanted the upper story to succeed. David wanted God's story to take prevalence on his own life. David was not concerned with the, the, the small events in his life. He wasn't scared of the battles. He was always concerned with what God was doing to redeem the world. David was all in on God's plan, but Saul had no concept of that upper story. That's why he mostly trusted God. See, I know that Saul trusted God, but he trusted himself more. And that's what people in the kingdom don't do. We're going to look at two ways today that David was all in. First of all, David was all in in battle. Now, I hesitate to call it the battle of David and Goliath because there wasn't really a battle. There was no swinging of swords, and we all know the story, but there was no battle. And the crazy part is that when everyone else is running away from the Philistines, David runs towards the battle. He runs towards Goliath, and he asks to fight. This is another story where the, Philistine, where the Israelites are filled with terror. This is 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 20 through 24. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as his father had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position. 
shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he, wa- as he w- was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. All of Israel sees the Philistine champion and runs away. Now, if you've ever seen any movies about times like this, this is called a champion's battle. So if the Philistines win, or if Goliath wins a one-on-one battle, the Israelites are defeated. But if if the Israelites select a champion and he kills Goliath, the battle's over in favor of Israel. So it's one-on-one for the winning of an entire army. And David says, I'm going to be the one that goes forward. And he looks nothing like a champion. He's too young. He's very muscular because it says in the scripture that he, kill, he killed a lion, which is crazy. But he says, even though I'm a boy, I'm the only one brave enough to go. So let's look at what happens. 1 Samuel 17, verse 41. Meanwhile, Goliath, with the shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistines cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Yeah. This is not telling us to fly across the world to Afghanistan because we can beat any army. That's not the the life application of of this story. What, What we learn from this story is that David really knew God's will. David really understood what God was promising. And what God promised, all this land, it belongs to you. David knew that, and David was willing to go all in to the point of fighting a guy twice the size of him because he knew that God delivers on his promises. This isn't about battle. This is about trust. David trusted that God was going to deliver him. David knew God's promise and believed it. David was also in on God's timing, and this story might take more self-control than going up and fighting fighting a giant. David didn't just trust in battle. He trusted in all life circumstances. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed by Samuel. Samuel comes, goes to all of Jesse's sons, looking for the king of Israel. And Samuel says, give me your youngest son. And Samuel goes to David and says, you will be the king of Israel. And for 14 years, David is not the king of Israel. I was studying this sermon at a Starbucks, and um, the guy next to me said, oh, that's cool. Tell, tell me about the story that you're studying. And I said, well, it's about David. What do you do? And he said, I'm an assistant football coach in charge of the wide receivers for university up in Colorado. And I said, okay, imagine that you get pulled into your president's office, and, and the school president says, you are going to be the new head football coach. And next year, you're still an assistant. The following year, you're still an assistant. The year after that, you're still an assistant. He interrupts me and he goes, no, 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 I'd quit. And I said, exactly, exactly, I would quit too. 
But David didn't. David is told he's going to be king, and God prepares him for 14 years before he ever takes the throne. He served as Saul's general. He served as Saul's musician. But all the while, David never tries to become a king because he knew that God promised he'd become a king. So he knew that God would make that happen. And in, in the middle of David's story, Saul decides he's going to try to kill David. And so he throws spears at him, and he chases him out of the, out of the castle. I'm sorry, out of, out of the palace. And um, David is living in a desert. You know, we, we think that in trusting God, good things would happen. David trusts God, and he lives in a desert. And he lives in a cave. And inside this cave, he's living in hiding with 600 other men. Now, this has to be a huge cave. But David is told he's going to be king, doesn't become the king, and so he's, now he's hunted by the king. And we're going to read one more story. David is hiding in a cave from Saul, who's trying to kill him. I love this story. 1 Samuel chapter 24. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of the robe. He said to his men, Lord forbid that I should do a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. I was going to ask, what would you do if you were David and Saul was relieving himself in front of you? But I don't want you guys to answer that question. It would be, be kind of weird. I also don't have to ask that question because I know what every single person in here would do. It's the same thing that I'd do. I want to kill Saul. Saul is hunting you, but you know you're the rightful king. Saul, at this point, is a terrible king, but David still serves him. Th this story goes against all logic, all, all strategy. It goes against, really, it feels like it goes against common sense. But David knew that God always fulfills his promises. David had a chance to make himself king, but said, no, I want God to make me king, because David knew that when God promises something, we don't have to make it happen. That's why we call him God, because he's God and we are not. Trusting in God's promises is, is the safest bet that we can make. But just like David living in a desert, it's not the easiest bet. Saul mostly trusted God because he was scared. He was filled with terror. And even though Saul did things for God, he also did things for himself. David, on the other hand, lived all in. David wanted the exact same thing that God wanted. 
He wanted to be used by God. And, and the, the biggest thing I learned from this, from looking at a story of a guy who mostly followed God and a guy who was all in on God, is that God uses people who are all in. God works through the people who want what he wants. And I know a lot of us here, and we really want to be used by God. There are great things happening in our church. There's great things happening all throughout our city, and it's been awesome to be a part of that. And God is doing those great things through people who are all in on his plan. Jason and I were, were, were talking earlier about how, how we hate the word maybe, how maybe is just a nice word of saying no. And, and I think that if, if we say to God, maybe, I think God looks down at us and says, well, maybe I'll find someone else. You know, Saul, he had a, a pretty good heart. He wanted to be used by God, but he mostly trusted God. And by mostly trusting God, David, God said, I'll find someone who really trusts me, and I'll work through him. Why is David a man after God's own heart? Why is he the most powerful, the greatest king of Israel? Why should all pregnant women name their son David? Because he trusted God. He was all in on God. There's no way to trust God and trust somebody else. We can't call ourselves Christian and put our faith in witchcraft. We can't call ourselves Christian and put our faith in money. It's the same exact thing. Sure, one seems more evil, but if we're putting our faith in something else, if we're putting our trust in something else when we're terrified, we're mostly trusting God. As people in the kingdom, we're just like my friend Jenny. We've been dealt the royal flesh. We're holding it, but the, but the round isn't over yet. What would it look like if we lived our lives as if we've already won? What would it look like if we didn't let our fear control us? What would it look like if we knew no matter what happened in this world, we were going to come out on top? What would happen if, it looked, if we knew we already won? Well, we've already won, and we've got the royal flesh. We, we, we literally cannot lose in this life. So, so, so what do we do? Do we bet, or do we let our enemy, do we let, do we let our opponent choose what we bet? Do we live our lives in fear and terror like Saul, or do we live it because we know we can't lose? Do we second-guess God's timing? Do we second-guess God's promises? Or do we lean back, push all of our chips on the table, and say, I'm all in. People who do that are the people who God uses. I want to be one of those people, and I know that we do here too. And it is so easy to preach about that. It's so easy to sit on a pew and say, yeah, yeah, I want to trust God too. But it's so hard. It's hard because it doesn't come natural. In one of his psalms that David wrote at this time, David said, let me teach you the fear of the Lord. And what that says is we have to learn how to trust God. And one of the ways that we learn how to trust God is through supporting each other. That, that's why we're here. We're here because we can help each other trust God more. That's why we commit to a church, because the people that know us know what we struggle with. We can help each other, we can hold each other accountable, and we can strengthen each other. Because if we don't trust God, God's not going to work through us. He's going to work through the people that do trust God. So right now, we're going to have a time of prayer. 
And in that time of prayer, we're praying by ourselves. We're praying with the people next to us. If you want to come to the front, you, you can pray with our church shepherds. And we're doing that because we need help. And we can support each other as we try to trust God more. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing a song. And if you want to come and have one of the shepherds pray for you, pre- please come do that. But if you want to pray with somebody next to you, or you want to pray by yourself as well, please do that. Let's pray. God, thank you for the life of David that showed us what it looks like to fully trust you. And, and I know that we all want to trust you, God, but it's so hard. And so I pray that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would strengthen our friendships, and that you would put people in our life that help us to trust you more. I pray that you will give us the courage to ask for help to those people as well. I pray that we'll be people who trust you in your timing, trust you in what you ask us to do, and trust you when you ask us to do nothing but wait. I pray that you will give us confidence in your upper story, confidence that that you win, confidence that we cannot lose because you've already won. We thank you, God, for being here with us today. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.